Uh, if you have your Bibles, I hope you'll turn to 1 Kings chapter 18. Uh, we are here. We're finally making it to the story, the passage that perhaps you've been looking forward to for several weeks. Ever since we first mentioned this guy, Elijah, coming onto the scene, perhaps your mind went exactly to this scene. The scene at Mount Carmel where he does this really awesome magical miracles. <laughs> he, he has this amazing contest with the prophets of Baal at, at Mount Carmel. And uh, perhaps that is what you remember most. <laughs> you remember the, all of the miracles that come about at this scene. And we'll get to those, of course, um, as we go through the text. So I'm gonna, we're going to walk through the whole thing, the whole story. But I think more memorable than just, what, just being reminded of these miracles, the fire and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I think this text should be more memorable to us precisely because of what those miracles do. And what those miracles prove. And what those miracles demonstrate. And by that I mean, I think what the story does... In a very dramatic way, I'll admit. But I think what it does is it shows us the type of religion that we have. (laughs) Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about what type of religion we practice at Stonington Baptist Church or that you practice in your own uh, Christian faith and walk? Uh, Perhaps you're saying in your head, uh, we don't have a religion, we have a relationship. (laughs) And I would say that that's true. That Jesus actually upside, turns upside down most of the religious notions when he comes on the scene. And he makes it very much about a relationship that individuals can have with each other, with the Holy Spirit together. That's what makes us the church. But I think it would be false to assume that our relationship with Christ doesn't also entail a lot of religious fervor and faith and practice and so forth. And what I mean to say is this, that... Whereas other systems of belief are pretty much either all religion or all relationship, Christianity is different because it's actually, if you will, a relational religion. That's what makes it amazing. Is that you and I, we are in a relationship with the one who spoke worlds into existence. And he spoke and created from nothing. And yet he chose to visit us. That's our relationship. And we, we remind ourselves of that through, yes, religious practices. Gathering, assembling as we take, for, uh, take part in communion. And, and all the different ways that we evidence uh, our religion through this amazing relationship we have with the Spirit. This is what makes Christianity different. We could also insert there the religion of Yahweh. Because that's the word that's going to appear in our text. We have a religion that is also a relationship that's real. There's a real the Holy Spirit that lives inside of you. And he's there by faith. And it's the Spirit of Christ who ministers Christ's works to you. This is the amazing religion that we have that we can cling to. And so when the writer to the Hebrews says in Hebrews 10 that hold fast the profession of your faith. That's what he's talking about. That when you go and you assemble and you take play, take part and participate in religious sort of practices. They're there to remind you of the amazing relationship that you have with the creator of all things. So I think that's what this passage is going to show us. (laughs) What our religion looks like, if you will. What makes it different 
Have you thought about that? Here, I think what we're going to find is four really distinctive features of the religion of Yahweh, Christianity, if you will, and how they are distinguished from any other religion in the world. So I want to walk through the text and we'll notice these as we go along. The first one I think we find here this morning is a religion of resolve. A religion of resolve. If you go to verse 18, uh, Elijah has now just come back onto the scene. He's come back into Israel after having that sojourn that we talked about in chapter 17 and most of the beginning of chapter 18. And he comes back. And remember, he has this amazing interaction with King Ahab. Look at verse 18. And he answering, well, let's jump back to verse 17. So here, Elijah and Ahab are having their sort of first audience after Elijah is coming back into the land. And it says, And it came to pass, when Ahab saw Elijah, that Ahab said unto him, Art thou he that troubleth Israel? Are you the one who is causing all this disruption? And Elijah answers and says, I have not troubled Israel, but thou, you have, and thy father's house, and that ye have forsaken the commandments of the Lord, and thou hast followed Balaam. Now therefore send and gather to me all Israel unto Mount Carmel and the prophets of Baal 450 and the prophets of the groves 400 which eat at Jezebel's table. What I find so fascinating about this initial uh, interaction between Ahab and Elijah is just the precise fact that Elijah appears to be the one in charge. (laughs) Remember, Ahab is this fearsome king of Israel, and he has done everything that he can to make sure he stays in power so far. Even, uh, so to speak, marrying Jezebel, this one who is kind of giving him a lot, of, uh, a lot more sway, if you will. And yet here, look who appears to be in charge. It's Elijah. He says, therefore, send and gather. He's Ordering the king around, so to speak, essentially reducing Ahab to nothing but uh, basically a messenger boy. <laughs> That's what those words are conveying. Go do my bidding, Ahab. Go, go gather your people. And this is exactly what Ahab does. Verse 20. So Ahab sends unto all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together unto Mount Carmel. Notice the two words are repeated again. Send and gather. Send and gather in verses 19 and 20. Ahab is fulfilling the role of basically an errand boy. He's a messenger for Elijah going out and gathering all these prophets together at this very precise location that Elijah chooses. Which, all of which to say, I think it's, it shows just how desperate Ahab was for this famine to be over. Remember now, we're three years into this famine that Elijah first prophesied about back in chapter 17. Things are desperate. Things are getting in very dire situations. And Ahab, I think, is now saying, I'll do anything. Just get rid of this thing. Get rid of all the stuff that's going on. Bring us back out of this uh, horrible season. So he now functions like a courier, this king does. And he brings all the people together, verse 21. And that's when Elijah begins to address the people. And I, this, this speech that Elijah goes on here from verse 21 through verse 24 is pretty remarkable. It's pretty amazing what he is proposing and what he is actually suggesting take place. Notice, Elijah came unto all the people and said, How long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people answered him not a word. 
Then said Elijah unto the people, I, even I only, remain a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are four hundred and fifty men. Let them therefore give us two bullocks. And let them choose one bullock for themselves. And cut it in pieces. And lay it on wood. And put no fire under. And I will dress the other bullock. And lay it on wood. And put no fire under. And call ye on the name of your gods. And I will call on the name of the Lord. Jehovah. Yahweh. And the God that answereth by fire... Let him be God. And all the people answered and said, it is well spoken. (laughs) He's essentially laying out the ground rules for a contest. A contest of religions. A contest of deities, if you will. And he says, let's just see whose God is real and true. And the rules are simple. Make an altar. Get yourself a bull. And prepare it. Dress it. Ready for sacrificing. And lay it on this altar, on this altar of wood, but don't light any fire. Actually, instead, the plan is for you to just spend your time praying to your respective God to rain down fire on the altar. Pretty amazing contest, if you will. <laughs> it's, a, it's a competition uh, uh, all re- revolving around prayer and spontaneous combustion. <laughs> Pretty exciting and grilling steak. So it's a pretty thrilling wager, I think. And here, Elijah says, this is what our contest is going to be. But it actually is much deeper than that. Because I love verses 21 and verse 24. Because notice what he's actually pitting uh, this contest all on. He says, verse 21, How long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And he repeats almost the same thing. In verse 24, essentially, let whoever wins, let him be seen and respected and regarded as God, the only God. So winner take all, match if you will. (laughs) This is a public showdown. Baal versus Yahweh. (laughs) The God of the hour, Baal versus old time religion if you will. And whoever is the first one to light the altar on fire, that's the God we, will, we ought to respect and regard and go towards. But I notice what makes this contest so momentous is precisely a couple of things. <laughs> this, that I think res- reveal Elijah's resolve in this particular situation. That firstly, he's out of place. Did you know that I don't think Elijah looked at a map of Israel and threw a dart and was like, let's go to Mount Carmel. <laughs> it wasn't random. He didn't just pick a name out of the hat. Actually, Mount Carmel, many believe, many historians say, was actually an old sanctuary precisely for worshiping Baal. It was a place, it had a lot of sacred, momentous sort of, uh, sort of meaning to people who would say they worship Baal. And so when he chooses this, he's going to enemy territory. It's like, if you will, if you went to Beaver Stadium for a Penn State game wearing Ohio State jersey. You are not going to get out of there alive. <laughs> this is what he's doing. He's going to a place where he is literally out of place. And the other guys have the home team advantage. He doesn't. He's behind the eight ball, if you will. He's out of place. But also, I would say it this way, he's sort of out of bounds. And what I mean by that is, remember, at this time, Baal worship is all the rage. 
It's, it's everywhere. It fills the streets. It fills people's minds. Almost all of Israel has been turned over to the liturgy of Baal. It has the power of the monarchy and the masses, if you will. Everyone's doing it. Everyone's worshiping Baal. Everyone loves the way that worshiping Baal sort of uh, meets their immediate and felt needs. And so when now when Elijah is now uh, entering into this contest between himself and the prophets of Baal, he's making a very serious move against what's popular. He's making a sort of statement and saying, I, yeah, I, I align myself with old time religion. <laughs> And I know that this is true. And everyone around him is saying, no one worships that guy anymore. No one worships Yahweh. That's that old, boring religion where no one's allowed to have any fun. We like to worship Baal. (laughs) He's making a very serious stance. And putting himself at great risk, endangering his life, endangering, if you will, his reputation, so to speak. That he is now aligning himself with a religion that's very outdated, very antiquated. No one worships him anymore. But and if if you think that there's more, there's there's more that is making Elijah's case a little bit difficult because he's not just out of place and out of bounds, but he's outnumbered. And because again, there's three times the historian reminds us just how alone he is in verse 19. It talks about the number of the prophets of Baal, 450. In verse 22, he says, I, only I remain as a prophet of Yahweh. In verse 25, it's the same thing. He talks about how there is many of them in compared to his sort of individuality. So here, he's the only voice, the only witness standing up, at least at this time, standing up. For uh, Yahweh himself. This appears more like a suicide mission then. He's in a place where no one wants him. Touting a religion that no one wants to hear about. In a place where he's its only voice. (laughs) And yet. Yet we find Elijah resolved in himself. And, but not because of himself, resolved to stand and say, this is true religion. He's standing in the gap, so to speak, calling all of Israel to, to witness and to confess and to repent. And you see, this is what this contest is really about. We're gonna, we'll get there in a little bit, but this contest is not really a competition. It's an invitation for all of Israel to witness the awesome power of Yahweh. That's what he's doing. He's setting Baal up to fail. He knows. He knows that whatever the prophets of Baal try is not going to (laughs) work. He knows that there was only one true God. But he wants them to see that. He doesn't want to just tell them that. He wants them to come to that conclusion on their own. And what better way than to actually have visible representations of how powerful Yahweh is versus how powerless Baal is. (laughs) That's the contest. Witness the awesome true might of the Lord of all things versus the pitiful puny uh, impotence of Baal. And all an insert you could insert in there any other false god. 
That's what he's doing. He's drawing a very stark light that there is only one true Lord of all. And he's resolved in this regard precisely because he knew who was with him. It was Yahweh. He was a prophet of Yahweh, speaking on behalf of Yahweh, speaking the words of Yahweh to people who were so antagonistic toward anything that had to do with Yahweh. And he resolved, why? Because Yahweh was with him. My friends, he is with you right now as well. This this God hasn't changed. He hasn't altered. He hasn't become different. The God of Elijah is the God of you and me right here, right now in Paxinos, Pennsylvania in 2021. The same God is Lord over all things. And yes, looking at the state of the world, we might think that Christianity is much in the same status. Outnumbered, out of place, out of bounds, out of touch, outgunned, outmanned. People think that we're just touting old time religion. And I would say, yes, we are. It's the only religion that is true. And guess whose God is alive? Ours. He walked out of a grave. And he's alive right now. Go back to verse 15. What does Elijah say? As the Lord of hosts liveth. That's the power. That's the resolve that went with him. As he went back into this place where he wasn't wanted. And no one wanted to hear what he had to say. The Lord of hosts liveth. And he comes in that Lord's name. Guess what? The Lord of hosts is still alive right now. And you and I have a religion of resolve that keeps us settled, that keeps us firm, that keeps us steady. Not because of us, not because we're amazing, because of who is alive? The Lord of hosts, Yahweh. He's alive right here, right now. And he's working towards bringing a a people, a remnant back to him. I'm thankful for the fact that we have a religion of resolve. But secondly, I want us to keep going. We have not only a religion of resolve, we have a religion of relief. A religion of relief. Notice, because now the ground rules are set. They're having this competition. Altar bulls on these pieces of wood, but no fire. They're going to call it down from heaven. And Elijah says, you guys can go first. Verse 25. And Elijah said unto the prophets of Baal, choose you one bullock for yourselves, and dress it first, for ye are many. And call the name of your gods, but put no fire under. You guys can go first. I'll let you have uh, the, the first sort of chance at this thing. And then they put their bull on the altar and they, they start crying out to this, this god, Baal. And it says that they are crying from morning until noon. Look at verse 26. And they took the bullock which was given them and they dressed it and called on the name of Baal from morning even until noon saying, Oh, Baal, hear us. But there was no voice nor any that answered. And they leaped upon the altar which was made. <laughs> You can see them getting a little bit uh, sort of confused and frustrated. They're crying out in their liturgy, whatever the prayers of Baal sounded like. And they're praying and they're saying, Baal, hear us, bring down fire. And nothing is silent. No flickers, no even little movements of the wood, no little sparks or anything. It's dead. 
And I, I love verse 27 because Elijah, he kind of presses the matter. He, he kind of makes them feel the deadness and the silence of what's going on. And he actually sort of goads them. He, he kind of mocks them. Not kind of. He really does. Verse 27, it came to pass at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is talking, or he is pursuing, or he is in a journey, or peradventure he sleepeth, or must be awaked. He's poking fun at these prophets. Volume. Volume's your problem. Just get a little bit louder. Maybe, maybe he's in a meeting. He's talking. He's in a meeting. Just cry louder and you can get him out. Maybe, maybe he's on a vacation. That's what he says. When he's on a journey. He's vacationing. So you have to get his attention. Maybe Baal, he's, he's napping. So you've got to cry louder to wake him out of his slumber. He's poking these prophets. He's goading them to make fools of themselves. To reveal just how powerless Baal is. And they take the bait. The prophets of Baal uh, take this challenge. Verse 28. And they cried aloud. They get even louder. And they make more of a show of themselves. And it says. And they cut themselves after their manner with knives and lancets. Till the blood gushed out upon them. And it came to pass when midday was passed. And they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. That there was neither voice nor any to answer. Nor any that regarded. If There has ever been a more devastating editorial comment than that. I don't know what it is. (laughs) The historian here adds those words and says, no one was listening. They were praying to no one. The sound was just as if you're in an open field and shouting and it doesn't go anywhere. It was purposeless. It was useless. All of their show, all of their frenzy, all of their disturbing sort of religion that they proclaim here is also so devastating. Think about it as it says, they were cutting themselves after their manner. In their religion, it was was part of this liturgy that they're trying to get their God's attention. So what are they doing? They're taking lancets and knives and and then cutting themselves, drawing blood to sort of get the attention of their God. And they're actually just getting the attention of no one because they have no one that they're actually praying to. Those words are devastating. My heart sinks at the fact that there are many who would likely align themselves with being the, having this frenzied sort of attempt to get God to do something. And here, that's what the prophets of Baal are doing. Their religion is sort of frenzied and unsettling and hysterical. They look like madmen trying to get this deity's attention. And again, the prophet says, the, the historian says, no one regarded No one was listening. So contrast all of that. All of that really disturbing imagery of these prophets of Baal uh, running around and and jumping around and and trying to get Baal's attention. Contrast that with the steady, quiet, calm prayer of Elijah. Notice verse 36. And it came to pass. We're jumping ahead. We'll we'll get to the verses in between in a minute. And And it came to pass. At the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, 
Lord God of Abraham, Isaac and of Israel, let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel, and that I am thy servant, and that I have done all these things at thy word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that thou art the Lord God, and that thou hast turned their heart back again. Notice what's absent in this prayer? Frenzy. Panic. He has nothing to do with the, with the hype and the crazy displays of religiosity like the prophets of Baal. He's not leaping on the altar. He's not shouting at the top of his lungs. He's not displaying this sort of really panicky prayer. Just simple, heartfelt prayer. Yahweh, hear me. Oh Lord, hear me. His demeanor throughout this whole scene is entirely the opposite of frantic or panicky situations. He is calm. He is resolved. He is steady. Because he knew he didn't need to be those things. He was on the side of Yahweh, the side of omnipotence. And therefore he was relieved knowing that his God was going to come through. Let me tell you this. Christianity is not a religion of panic. It's not a religion of frenzy. If you're wringing your hands and making your knuckles white at the state of the world, it's time to get back in the word. Because the word of God relieves us of panic and frenzy and fear. It does not make us timid. It does not make us tenuous. We can be sure of the end of all things, not because we know about them, because we know the one who has already orchestrated them and knows the one who has already ordered them from before time began. If there is a preacher that you're listening to, hopefully it's not me, who is making you disturbed and distraught over the the course of his preaching, over the the course of what this life looks like, you, you... you might be better served getting your preaching somewhere else. Because the Christian faith is a religion of relief. It's a religion that relieves people of their fear, relieves people of their worry. And even more than that, even deeper than that, it relieves people of their sin. The entire ministry that Jesus Christ demonstrated on this life was a ministry of relieving people from their heartache. Whether that be through horrible failures or whether that be through horrible sorrows. The message of the Christian religion is one that is meant to relieve us of our sins and unburden us from a panicky worry about tomorrow. That's what Jesus was doing. <laughs> Don't worry about tomorrow. The tomorrow has enough cares and stresses and worries to take care of itself. You be my disciples here and now. My friends, there is one who has already taken on all of our sins. And there is one who has already uh, orchestrated the end of all things. And his name is Christ the King. 
And he's the one we worship when we come here and assemble as the church. He's the one that we come here and practice this religion that's all about. It's all about realizing that there's a king who's better than us. And that there's this king who comes down to save us. And that there's this same king who has orchestrated the end of all things already. We don't have to white knuckle fear uh, as things get more and more uh, scary. More and more fearful. We can rest. In the assurance that Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning right now. Just like Elijah saying, hear me Lord. Hear me. We don't have to hoot and holler and leap on altars and cut ourselves. We don't have to make our religion any sort of crazed sort of religious show. We like Paul. I desire to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. Because he's the king. And when Christ is preached, panic gives way to peace. And and frenzy and fear gives way to faith. Because Christ is the king. Think about what was going on in the first century. When Paul was writing those words. Now, I'm not sure off the top of my head exactly when Paul was writing uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2. And he talks about preaching Christ and him crucified. But think about the Roman Caesars at that very time. And how much of a heartache they were making on anyone who said that they were Christians. And what is Paul preaching about? What is Paul writing to the Corinthians about? The end of all things and how you can know it. No, he says, Christ is the crucified one who is also the resurrected one who is the king. That's our message to a world that's dying of panic and fear and stress and worry. Not that they can know the future, but guess who they can know. Guess who they can have a relationship with. Yahweh in flesh. Jesus Christ himself. That's the message that relieves souls. That dispels any sense of fear or worry or doubt. Not that we have all the answers, but that there's one who does. That's what relieves us. I must hasten. We have a religion of resolve, a religion of relief, but thirdly, a religion of remembrance. Notice. To no one's surprise, as we noted, the prophets of Baal have their prayers, they have their chants, nothing. Dead silence. So notice what Elijah does. Verse 30. Elijah begins his turn. And it says, And Elijah said unto all the people, verse 30, Come near unto me. And all the people came near unto him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. Apparently, the movement that, was, that was, had been going on in Israel to replace Yahweh included destroying all the old altars. And so here Elijah is taking time to repair it. Verse 31, And Elijah took twelve stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, unto whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be thy name. So he's, you notice, he's patiently taking his time to repair this altar. Again, he's not panicky, he's not worried. But he goes even further to demonstrate the awesome power of Yahweh alone by dousing his entire altar in water. Not just one time, but actually three times. Notice verse 32. 
And the stones that he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two measures of seed, roughly four gallons. And he put the wood in order and cut the bullocks in pieces and laid him on the wood and said, Fill four barrels with water and pour it on the burnt sacrifice on the wood. And he said, Do it the second time. And they did it the second time. And he said, Do it the third time. And they did it the third time. And the water ran round about the altar and he filled the trench also with water. Four gallon trench, four barrels of water, three times poured on this altar. And anyone in their right mind knows that Elijah is giving himself a terrible time to try and light this thing. <laughs> All this, th- this stuff is soaked, it's drenched. This is never going to light. <laughs> this is never going to work. All the prophets, all the crowds around him are saying, why in the world is he doing that? And he, not panicky, not worried at all, simply prays those verses that we read. And they came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. And Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham and Isaac and of Israel, let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel and that I am thy servant and that I have done all these things at thy word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that thou art the Lord God and that thou hast turned their heart back again. He prays, and look at verse 38. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. (laughs) A fireball screams out of the sky and ignites that altar and consumes everything. This moment that we hinted at earlier of divine spontaneous combustion left everyone no room for doubt. This is an act of God. And that's the whole point. That's been Elijah's whole point this whole entire time. If you remember Elijah's prayer, notice he doesn't pray For a fireball to fall out of the sky. What does he pray for? I think this is so significant. Look at verse 37. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know. May know that thou art the Lord God. And that thou hast turned their heart back again. He's inviting them to witness power so that they can confess and repent and that their hearts can be turned back to Yahweh alone after even all of the reprehensible rebellion that they've participated in by worshiping Baal. Elijah says, this God wants to turn your hearts back to him. He wants them to remember. Remember who their God is. Not Baal. Notice how Elijah's prayer begins. Lord God of Abraham and Isaac and of Israel. Israel's God he's praying to. The God that they have forgotten. Witness his power. Witness his authority. See he's reminding them who their God really was. The God of the impossible, if you will. The God of making covenants. You notice he mentions Abraham. He mentions Isaac. He mentions Israel, a.k.a. Jacob. 
He mentions all of these great names that were so storied and historical in Israel's faith. And he's trying to shove in their faces that this God has covenanted with each of these to bring forth a nation, to bring forth blessings. You can go read Genesis 12, go read Genesis 15, go read Genesis chapter 17 and 22 and on and on. Go read Exodus. It's all about this covenant that God has made with his people to bring about a blessing, to bring about a one united kingdom you can go back to all those different locations and it all brings them back to that one truest of all covenants Genesis 3.15 where God promised to those first two people Adam and Eve that though they had blundered in the worst way possible guess who was going to come the seed of the woman to crush that serpent's head That promise is what has been kept through all all these long storied centuries. And Elijah is saying that that God who promised that is still your God. He wants you to remember who he is. He's a God of promises and a God of relief and a God of resolve. And he wants you to remember that you are his and he is yours. For however much they may have forgotten that. For however much they had broken down the things of Yahweh. This God could repair them again. This God could turn their hearts back again. Guess what? We are offered that same remembrance every time we come into church. What are we opening Or what are you opening on your phone? Or what are you opening in this Bible? God's revelation of his promises. The promises that he says I have done and will do. And when we come here we are collectively corporately remembering who our God is. That's what worship is. Worship is a collective remembrance. Of who it is that snatched us out of darkness and brought us into light. And we need that remembrance both now and forever. And thankfully we have this God who is always willing to get us to remember. This is what Elijah is bringing forth to the people. This religion of remembrance. I'm going long. I have to hasten. Fourthly, a religion of resolve and relief and remembrance. Lastly, a religion of righteousness. And I think this point is important. Because the ending of the story catches us so off guard. The fireball blazes down from heaven and consumes the altar, dazzling everyone. And then the people respond. Verse 39. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, He is the God. The Lord, He is the God. It would seem that the masses seem to have grasped exactly what Elijah was driving them to. That Yahweh alone is God. And then Elijah spoils it all by having all the prophets of Baal slaughtered. Verse 40. And Elijah said unto them, take the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. And they took them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slew them there. At first... If you're like me, you're like, whoa, what? Did he, did he really need to do that? Isn't this a little over the top? 
Does he really need to take them all down and and slaughter them all by this river? (laughs) What do we do with this? (laughs) Well, in short, yes, he does need to do this. If you look at Exodus 22 or Deuteronomy 13 or Deuteronomy 18, this was sort of the penalty for those who stood in the assemblies and said, I am a prophet and prophesied falsely. Stoning was the punishment. Stoning was the answer. So I would say Elijah is very much in keeping with the law of God. And I think it's especially significant because these prophets weren't just shouting and, and making names for themselves. They were actually making assemblies to themselves. So they were gathering followers to their false religion and horrible worship. But I think also the deeper point in this annihilation of these prophets of Baal. Again, it shows us what we've been looking at all along. The type of God that we serve. He is a God of unflinching and zealous holiness. Who is so jealous for the hearts of his people. That he doesn't stand idly by when his people are being seduced and placated by false worship. All of the hysterical theatrics that the prophets of Baal were putting on, God doesn't stand by. Instead, what does he do? He consumes all of that unholiness in white, hot righteousness. Deuteronomy 4.24, Deuteronomy 9.3, and Hebrews 12.29 all say the same thing. Our God is a consuming fire. And here he's demonstrating it physically. All the unholiness that Israel had put on display, this God consumes in his holiness. Because no little sliver of wrongdoing is allowed. And those who set out to replace this king, this Yahweh, this king of all kings, and they seduce others to follow them, will one day find that there is no overthrowing this God. The people who confessed the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is the God, is so entirely true. And I couldn't help but picture in this precise moment what the writer, or excuse me, what Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 2. If you remember those verses, that Jesus Christ is the one who is going to be exalted, and at his name, everyone will bow. Not just some people, not just a few people. Everyone who has ever been alive will one day bow before this Lord of all things. This God who is our consuming fire, who is white hot in righteousness. And here he's showing us palpably what type of God he is. That there is only one God. This contest was not really a contest. There was no competition. There was no competition between Baal and Yahweh. It was a rout. KO from the very beginning. There is only one God. There is no other. There is only one true religion that can get you to heaven. There is only one way, one truth, one life. And it comes through the religion of Yahweh himself. And this is what we preach. We preach Christ. Yahweh come in the flesh. And we don't have to be scared about preaching such an exclusive message. Because this is the message that gives us resolve, that gives us relief, that gives those they were preaching to relief, that calls us to remember, that gives us righteousness that is not our own. And it comes through declaring the truth 
about this God who became flesh to dwell among us and eventually die for us. This is what we proclaim. My friends, this is true religion. (laughs) To quote the Apostle James in Undefiled, he terms it there in terms of serving widows and orphans. And I would say pure, pure, true, and religion is this. It's resolve and relief and remembrance and righteousness. Knowing that the king is being proclaimed. That Christ crucified is preached. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes.